And now we move into a whole new section. Now notice, remember, the first five chapters were completely focused on preparing Israel ceremonially for the conquest. And then now we're getting into chapter 13 and all the way into chapter 22, I think it's about, it's not conquest. So the conquest is only chapters 6 through 12. It is not even half of the book. And once again, like I mentioned at the very beginning, that's the narrator's way of showing you that the point of this book is not the conquest. The point of this book was beginning with, first and foremost, the, whether they were right with Yahweh or not, ceremonially, ritually. And that, it spent more time on that than anything else. And then when we actually get to the conquest, it's defeat, defeat, defeat. And the only great details that we get is Jericho, because it's the first one, and AI, because they screwed up. And now we're done with the conquest. And now we get to chapter 13, and the whole rest of the book is mostly dividing up all the land. Like going down to the city hall and reading a bunch of documents of where, where property lines are. And you're like, I don't want to go and read about property lines in Columbus in my neighborhood. But that's the rest of the book. Because the point is, the main, main point of this book is God is faithful to give them the land that he promised them. And we talked about this in Genesis, but the three most important things in all of creation account is Yahweh, humanity, and the land. And so God created a land, and out of the land comes two seeds. The seed of the plant that produces life, and the seed of the human that produces life. And he connects these things together by pulling the seed of the human out of the dirt, pulling the seed of the plant out of the dirt, and then placing humanity in the land and over the plants and say, rule and subdue it. And all throughout the Bible, the one thing that God talks about more than anything is land, 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 land. And God's going to make it very clear that you're in the land of the Garden of Eden. And when they sinned, they got kicked out of the land. And then they, God keeps scattering them at the Tower of Babel and the flood. And every time they sin, he scatters them. And he drives them further eastward away from the garden. And then he promises Abram a land where you can bless them. And then when we get to the law, God makes it very clear that anybody who's outside the land is cursed. Land becomes very important here because land is how God literally physically provides his promises to them and, and brings them the, the joy and the blessings. And so now that God has made such a big deal about the land for the last five books of the Bible, and he's finally giving it to them, He's going to spend the most of this book talking about the allotment of the land. Because this is by far, other than humanity, the most important thing that God has done in all of creation. And then think about when we get to the end of the Bible, the big, big, big focus is the kingdom of God coming down to the land, where humanity now dwells with God in the land. And so this is a very, very, very important theme that we're heading into. So chapter 13 begins with this, Now I am going to give you everything that I promise. So when Joshua was very old, Yahweh told him, You are very old. <laughs> <laughs> and a great deal of land remains to be conquered. This is the land that remains. All the territory of the Philistines, which is this yellow area, all the Girgashites from Shallow River east of the Egypt, northwards to the territory, so that's more of the southern region, including the area belonging to the five Philistine lords who ruled over Gaza, Ashdod, 
Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron, which those seas will become prominent in the beginning of First Samuel, as well as the Aviite land, and to Ara in the region of Sidon, and the region all the way to Sidon is Phoenicia, this orange up here. So basically he's saying everything in this very southern part here and all the way up the western coast, which is interesting because it's also the best farmland in all of Israel. These are some of the most powerful cities other than the ones that he has conquered, and it's the best land. In verse 6, I will drive them out before the Israelites, all who live in the hill country from Lebanon to Mizrathoth, Miriam, and all the Sidonians, and you, you be sure to parcel it out, Israel, as I instructed you. Now divide up this land among the nine tribes and the half-tribe of Manasseh. So God then decides that he's going to start divvying out the land. So the first land that he starts with is, in chapter 13, verse 8, is the two and a half tribes on the eastern side of the Jordan River. Reuben. He starts with Reuben. Reuben was the firstborn. Now, remember, we got to back up a little bit here. Remember, there's, there's actually 13 tribes. And so basically, Jacob had 12 sons. Genesis, at the very end of the book, Jacob brings all of his sons. He begins to bless them. But before he blesses them, in chapter 47, he starts with the two sons of Joshua. Or sorry, he starts with the first two sons of Joseph. He goes to Joseph, who has two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And he puts his hands on them and he blesses them. And he blesses them in such a way that he's elevating them up to the equal status of his other sons. So he takes the two sons of Joseph, his grandsons, and makes them equal in inheritance to his other 12 sons. So basically what he's doing is he's doubling Joseph. Because if you notice up here, there's no tribe of Joseph. Joseph doesn't get any land. Because God is giving Joseph twice the amount of land through his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And so Manasseh and Ephraim become a replacement for Joseph. And so that means now if Joseph is getting eliminated, you now have 11, but you're adding two in its place, which means you have 13. But at the same time, remember all the way back, and so that gives you 13 tribes total. And so he's going to divvy the land up. Back up even further. That's Genesis 47 is blessing Massa and Ephraim, and Genesis 49 is in blessing the other 11 sons. So you back up even further back to Genesis 34 with Dinah and the Shechemites. And in there, basically what happens is you have Simeon and Levi who decide to get revenge on the Shechemites for raping their sister, and he just sla they slaughtered them all. But what makes it such a bad sin is, one, they're just slaughtering a whole bunch of people just for vengeance when only one guy raped their sister, and yet they kill everybody in the town. And two, they use the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant was meant to be a blessing to the world, a means of showing that you love God. And they used the sign of the Abrahamic covenant to trick them into being circumcised so they were painful and kill them. That's like using the cross of Christ to get people into the church just so you can kill them. And so Jacob in chapter 49 says, you're cursed. <laughs> you're not getting any land. The Simeonites and the Levites, you're not getting any land whatsoever. And so they lose out. And so you don't really see a tribe of Simeon up here either, and you don't see a tribe of Levi up here. You see Simeon here at the bottom, but it's because God scatters Simeon into Judah. They don't get their own land. 
They had to share with their brother. So, and then later on, we come to the Levites in Genesis, or sorry, Exodus 32. So the Levites have been cursed, the Simeonites have been cursed, and they don't get any land. So we come in Genesis 32, or Exodus 32, and they're all worshiping the golden calf, and the only tribe that's not worshiping the golden calf is the Levites. And the Levites stand next to God, and they obediently punish those who worship the golden calf. And God says, you now, all of you, because you worship the golden calf, you all lose the right to be the priests. So God's original intention was that they were all going to be priests, the entire nation. And so he says, you lost the right to be priests. But the Levites, who did not do this, and they stood next to me, and they were faithful to Moses in executing my judgment, they get to be the priests. But God doesn't undo the curse of not giving them land. But he does redeem them by giving them the priesthood. So later on in the book of Joshua, when we get there, he's going to give the Levites cities scattered all throughout that land. So we'll we'll come to that later. So Simeon gets scattered into the tribe of Judah. Levites are going to get their own cities throughout the land, mostly so that there's a priest in every single tribe to help lead them and guide them. And then, of course, Joseph has been doubled up into two. And so that's the way God is kind of divvying out the land. And that's why we have no tribe of Simeon, no tribe of Levi, and, and no tribe of Joseph here. Although technically we do because Joseph's been doubled through Manasseh and Ephraim. Then we get to Numbers. At the very end of Numbers, around chapter 25 or so, they come to Sihon and Og here, and they defeat them all. And... Reuben and Gad and half of Manasseh says, hey, we really like this land. We would like to settle here. And Moses, without consulting God, basically says, well, if you promise to cross over and help everybody else do the conquest, I'll go ahead and give you this land. Remember, we talked about this earlier in the book, putting people on different sides of this rift valley destroys the unity of the nation. However, because Moses, as the prophet, made the promise to these two and a half tribes, God's going to honor it. Now we're time to divvying up the land, and God, Joseph comes to Reuben and says, this is the land that God is giving you. Basically what you read is you have everything between this river and this river and this river, and it lists all these natural landmarks. For every tribe, God's going to list mountains and wadis and rivers and ravines and stuff to kind of border it out. We're not going to read through all that, but I am going to talk about it. So they get Reuben. Reuben gets this region right here. This is east of the Dead Sea, and it's a very barren land. There's not a lot of agricultural growth there. And one of the reasons, too, is Reuben got cursed by Jacob as well. And Reuben didn't get cursed in the sense of losing all tribal territory, but he did get cursed in being the weakest and the most pathetic because he decided that he was done with his dad favoring Joseph and Benjamin over everybody else, and he's the firstborn and should get everything. So he decided to try to take his dad's inheritance by force by sleeping with one of his wives. And Jacob didn't like that. Now, he hadn't literally gone out and slaughtered and killed people in the name of God, so he didn't lose land, but he did lose the greatest land, the blessings of the land. So he gets a very barren territory. Then God moves up to Gad. And don't know why God decided to give him a bunny rabbit head land, but he goes up to Gad and he gives him this. And Gad gets a much better land. This is a lot more fertile. It's still on the east side, and the land on the east is not as good as everything here. 
but he gets better land. And then he goes to half of Manasseh, because only half of Manasseh requested the land on this side. And he gives them this region up here as well, to the north of the Galilee. So basically these three tribes are stacked on each other. And basically what God is saying is, I am faithful to you. I am faithful to you. I have given you your land. Chapter 14. Because Judah was the guy in Genesis who was willing to sacrifice his life, Judah was like a horrible guy. He was selfish. He was immoral. He slept with Canaanite prostitutes, all this kind of stuff. But he began to grow, and he began to come back to God. And so when they're selling Joseph into slavery, he basically, where all the brothers said, let's just kill him. Joseph says, well, you know, he is our brother after all, and that's really wrong. We shouldn't kill him. So let's sell him into slavery. So I didn't say Judah was awesome. I just said he was better than everybody else. So at least he wasn't willing to kill him. But later as Judah grows in his faith and he begins to wake up to like how stupid and immoral he is, we get to the end of the book of Genesis and Joseph is testing his brothers to see if they're still selfish and to see if they're really still willing to kill Jacob's favorite son to get what they want. So he threatens Benjamin's life. And if they say, go ahead, take Benjamin, kill him, and they offer him up, then he knows that they haven't changed. They're still selfish and they still hate everything that their father's doing. But if they're willing to protect them, he knows that they've grown. And Judah's the one who steps up and says, I will sacrifice my own life. Kill me instead of Benjamin. And where before Judah hated his father, now at the end of his life he says, because I can't bear to see my father be sad at losing another son. And that's tremendous growth. And because he was so sacrificial... And because he's the one that stood up as the leader, willing to sacrifice himself for Benjamin and basically all of his other brothers, Jacob honored him by making him the firstborn over the entire nation. And so now that we've dealt with the tribes that are kind of not where they're supposed to, now we come to Judah. And Judah is the first land that God dibbies up. But what's interesting is before we get to Judah, God talks about Caleb first. He deals with Joshua first and Caleb and Caleb is a Judaite. And Caleb and Joshua were the only two guys back in Numbers 14 who said, we can take this land. God said, hey, Caleb, because you were so faithful and obedient to me, I'm going to give your family even more cities than every other family in Judah. Caleb steps up and Caleb says, I'm ready to take my land now. But God didn't assign him specific cities. He just said, I'll give you more cities. And when Joshua asked him, what cities do you want? Caleb said, I want the one with the Anakites. Caleb could have easily said, I'm old. I mean, Joshua and Caleb remember the two oldest people in the entire nation because they're the only people from the previous generation that didn't die in the wilderness. So he's old. And, he, he, and he's been faithful to God all he wants. He could easily just say, I mean, remember, he's in the 67 years old. He used to say, I'm old, I'm tired, I've been faithful to God. Give me these seas that have already been conquered. But 40 years later, plus the 14 of the conquest, Caleb is asked, what seas do you want? And he says, I want those three or four cities that still have been conquered. They have the giants in it because I'm going to take it because I know God can give it to me. That's faith. That's faith. And it's not acting like a spoiled little brat. 
He is going for the hardest cities in the entire land and says, I'm going to take this because I want to see God do something amazing. Those are the cities I want. They are down in this region. They're not specifically on this map. But they're um, the beer. It was on the other map. So let's go. Chapter 15, verse 13. Caleb, son of Jephnu, was assigned Kirith Arabah, that is Hebron. So I'll go back to the other one. So Hebron right here. Now notice that they're giving you the Canaanite name, and then they're going to give you the Hebrew name. And that's another way of God saying, I am faithful to give it to them. Because if you rename something, that means you own it and control it now. And so by specifically saying this is what it was called by the Canaanites, but this is what they called it, means that they totally control it, which means God was faithful, and they were faithful. So he's given Hebron within the tribe of Judah, according to Yahweh's instructions to Joshua. Arabah was the father of Anak. And Caleb drove out from there three Anakites, Sheshai, Hahaman, and Talamai, descendants of Anak. And from there he attacked the people of Debir, Debir used to also be called Kerith-Saphir. So Debir is down here, right here. So he's given that city as well. Caleb said to the man who attacks and captures Debir, I will give my daughter Aksa as a wife. So he conquers all these cities he's given, but he leaves one city unconquered. And he says, okay, I have this daughter by the name of Aksa. I love her. I'm going to give my daughter's hand and marriage to whoever can conquer this city of Debir. If you're reading this as an American, the first thing that's going to come out of your mouth is, that's sexist. <laughs> and I've heard people say this. That's sexist. Seriously, he's going to pick the son-in-law for his daughter, like the strongest guy. I mean, we know. We don't want to pick like the, the biggest, like no offense if you were this, but like the football jock that's just the jock. I mean, if you were a good football jock who had good character and good act, that's one thing, but, but we know the stereotype. So I'm using the stereotype, not the rule, or the truth. So you don't want just some guy who is able to beat everybody up, and you're like, that's the guy for my daughter. You'd be like, you're a crappy father. Okay, seriously. But think about it. Okay, I haven't, I'm nowhere there yet, but watching high school girls, I'm scared to death today. <laughs> that I've got to figure out whether this son-in-law is actually a godly man or not. Okay, there is no way you can know. There's absolutely no way you can know. Not really. I've seen too many people who have married somebody and they turn out to be somebody completely different later. There's no way you can know. The only person who knows is God. How do you figure out that this is the guy for your daughter-in-law, your daughter? The only way that Israel can have victory is if they're faithful to Yahweh. When they were not faithful, they lost the city of Ai. When they were faithful, they conquered the city of Jericho. God has already established this in this book. So Caleb says, the guy who can conquer this city is a girl for, or the guy for my girl. And he knows that the only way that anybody can conquer Debir with the Anakites, the giants, is if they are a godly man, obedient and faithful to Yahweh, and Yahweh will give him that victory. And so the guy who can do it, Caleb knows that's a godly man. I mean, this is brilliant. This doesn't work today, because we don't have the promise of conquering anything. But for this particular time in history, in this particular region, this is brilliant. This is a father who's figured out, according to the promises of God, 
that if you're able to go out and take this promise of God, it means that you're faithful and God is rewarding you and you're godly. It says that Othniel steps up. Now, Othniel will come back later in the book of Judges. So Othniel, we're told, who is the brother of Caleb and the son of Kenes. You're like, okay, wait a minute. Caleb's brother is going to marry his daughter? That's absolutely forbidden according to the law. But you need to understand something. This word is really confusing. It's, it's gotten muddied in the Hebrew, and, and it's really confusing. Most scholars will tell you they don't think this is the word. Now, how do you know what's really going on? Here's the key. Several times throughout the book of Numbers, and now here, we're told in verse 13 that Caleb is a son of Jephunneh. And then right here we're told in verse 17 that Othniel is the son of Kenaz. And this word for brother could also be translated nephew if you just change one letter. And so most likely what happened is one letter got corrupted or erased or somehow confused. And it really should be the nephew, which is not forbidden by the law. And this is very, 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 very obvious by the fact that they have two different fathers. They have two different fathers. And so Caleb's nephew steps up and says, I'll do it. And he goes out, and without hesitation, he conquers the city, and it's not epic, and Caleb gives his daughter. And now Caleb, as a father, can say, I know my daughter married a godly man. Now it's important. This story is going to be repeated again in the book of Judges. Right now, it's emphasizing the faithfulness of Caleb. It's emphasizing the faithfulness of the next generation has been picking up that faithfulness in Caleb's family. And that that's, but in Judges, they're going to retell the story with a different emphasis. But right now, this is the emphasis here. Now, later, Aksa says, Hey, Dad, I really would like some springs. You know, water. She bows down to her father. And what this shows is that she's submitting herself to her father. She respects her father. Because you could read this, like, she gets off the horse, she, like, throws her hair back, and she, like, so he sweet-talks her father and tries to manipulate, and he's like, oh, I can't say no to you, you're so cute. And he gives it to this. And you can see her as a very manipulative daughter. But the fact that he immediately starts with her getting off her horse and bowing down to him means that she's doing this in great respect and reverence for her father. And so what you're seeing, this is a very godly family. And she's asking for springs. And Caleb faithfully gives her the springs. Now, what's interesting, springs have always been symbolic of fertility. So what it's saying is that God is, going to, is blessing her and Othniel with fertility, great children, and great numbers. Because that's one of the promises of God, too. The more faithful you are, the more God will make you numerous. What God is showing is because Caleb is faithful, and he's raised a family that is faithful, and he's faithfully tried to find a godly man for his daughter, that God is now blessing them with the spring's fertility. And God is being faithful to them, their obedience. And so what you see here is this is the picture of what godliness looks like. This is passing on to the next generation. This is making sure that you do right by your children. This is God blessing them with fertility and abundance of land and children. And this is their willingness to be faithful to God. This is a meant to be, and the fact that it gets repeated again in Judges is God's way of saying, pay attention to this. This is the way that I wanted it to work. 
This is Deuteronomy, teaching your children as you wake up and you walk along the path and you go to sleep. This is the children taking it and holding it and owning it. This is children going out and doing the faith themselves. And this is God blessing the entire family for that. Listen, I'm not trying to say to you either that if you do all this, you're automatically going to be promised health, wealth, and prosperity. Because we have different promises today. The promises for Israel were blessings in the land. That's not what God promises to us today. God promises us spiritual blessings, hope, joy, peace, and all that kind of stuff. If you're feeling like, I did all that, and I don't have that health, wealth, and prosperity, that's because we're not Israel. We're not Israel. But at the same time, you should be thinking, but I do have peace. I do have joy. I do have hope. Does that mean you have it all the time and every second? No. But if your life is constantly filled with depression and fear and, and anxiety and that kind of stuff, then there is something going on. And I'm not saying you're sinning, but I am saying get on your knees and pray and ask why. But if you overall feel like, okay, I'm freaking out right now, I'm very anxious, but you know what, I'm going to go to God in prayer, and you start feeling that peace and that, that kind of stuff, and you might have to do that like every single hour for like several days in order to keep feeling that, but you, keep, you do feel it, and then you see God working your life and you grow, then you are reaping the blessings of God. Because remember, it doesn't say that Othniel just walked in and everybody died. He still had to fight them. And so taking the promises of God is work, and it requires you to do things, but it also comes easy, for lack of a better word, because God is always faithful to give it to you. So even having peace, hope, and joy is going to be work. You have to be involved in Bible reading and prayer and all that kind of stuff, but God promises to give it to you if you faithfully come to him. But if you're never, ever feeling it, no matter how much you pray, then it might be God's way of saying, there's some sin in your life that you need to deal with. There's sin in your life that you need to deal with. And so God is painting a picture of faithfulness rewarded with faithfulness. And so then he goes on and he starts listing off the territory of Judah. Judah is given all of this. He is the firstborn. He's given everything in the green, the southern part. And notice he's not given Jerusalem. The border goes right up to Jerusalem. And if you've read Samuel with the story of David, who's from Judah, who controls Jerusalem, you might think that that was originally a part of it, but it wasn't. But you're going to have to wait till we get there to figure that one out. So he gives them all of this region. Now, you have to remember a lot of this south of Beersheba is desert territory. Um, but there are a lot of good rivers down here, and this is the southern. The main way that people are going to come into Israel is through the south from Egypt. So Judah, the firstborn, the, the strongest, has got the south protecting themselves from Egypt. And the other way is through the eastern part of the Jordan River which are three tribes that didn't totally trust God, and that's why they're going to get clobbered all the time in the future. So Judah is given all his green territory, and then Simeon is scattered in Judah. 